millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As you know, this show is a loyal member of the Agora Podcast Network. This month, I'm very happy to announce that our own Zach Twomley has published his first work of fiction. It's entitled Matchlock and the Embassy, a 30 Years War Story. I have read the first 40 pages so far, and I can say that it's a real page-turner in the vein of Bernard Cornwell type of historical fiction story. It should be available for purchase in an ebook format online now-ish. There may even be physical copies. I don't know. But by the time I publish this episode, I will have that information in the show notes. In any case, Zach is a great guy, and let's also some history podcasting solidarity and buy his book. It's great. And it's not that expensive. Now, as you are all well aware, this show does not exist merely on hope and dreams. No. Like any great nation, our miserable mercenary armies are kept watered and fed by the royalty of our realm. And to prove their worthiness... Certain listeners have come forward to join those ranks by purchasing, uh, I mean, giving donations and patronage to keep this project afloat, and in return are gifted royal titles. Up first, we have Roberto. Sir Roberto has requested to be known as Roberto the Cartvelian, devourer of Kinikali. We will hear from Roberto in a few minutes, reading the intro quote for today's episode. Up next, we have patron Elaine, whose numerous services to the realm have earned her the honor of being dubbed Countess Elaine, Lint Collector General. And finally, we have Kevin, who has upped his donation and has now been duly awarded the rank of Archduke Kevin, Shaver of the Royal Kiwis. Thank you to Roberto, Elaine, and Kevin for helping me keep this show running. And thank you all of you for listening. If you're interested in becoming a donor or a patron, head over to the website where you can go to the support page and find ways to do so. But thank you all just for listening. Title two of the law of nature, the law of nations and the civil law. Section two. Civil law takes its name from the state wherein it binds. For instance, the civil law of Athens it being quite correct to speak thus of the enactments of Solon or Draco, so too we call the law of the Roman people the civil law of the Romans, or the law of the Quirites. The law, that is to say, which they observe, the Romans being called Quirites after Quirinus. Whenever we speak, however, of civil law, without any qualification, we mean our own, exactly as when the poet is spoken of, 
without addition or qualification, the Greeks understand the great Homer, and we understand Virgil. But the law of nations is common to the whole human race, for nations have settled certain things for themselves as occasion and necessities of human life required. For instance, wars arose, and then followed captivity and slavery, which are contrary to the law of nature, for by the law of nature all men from the beginning were born free. The law of nations again is the source of almost all contracts. For instance, sale, hire, partnership, deposit, loan for consumption, and very many others. Title three of the Law of Persons. In the Law of Persons, then, the first division is into free men and slaves. 1. Freedom, from which men are called free, is a man's natural power of doing what he pleases, so far as he is not prevented by force or law. 2. Slavery is an institution of the law of nations, against nature subjecting one man to the dominion of another. 3. The name slave is derived from the practice of generals to order the preservation and sale of captives, instead of killing them, Hence, they are also called manscipia, because they are taken from the enemy by the strong hand. 4. Slaves are either born so, their mothers being slaves themselves, or they become so, and this either by the law of nations, that is to say by capture in war, or by the civil law, as when a free man, over twenty years of age, collusively allows himself to be sold in order that he may share the purchase money. 5. The condition of all slaves is one and the same. In the conditions of free men, there are many distinctions to begin with. They are either freeborn or made free. Quote from the Institutes of Justinian, translated into English by J.B. Moyle, as read by Roberto the Cartvelian, devourer of Hinkali, host of the History of Sacartvelo, Georgia podcast. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings! My name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. This is episode 78, Slavery in the Middle Ages, Part 4, The Rise of Serfdom. In the last three episodes, we discussed the concept of slavery in the Middle Ages in terms of the historiography, theoretical frameworks, legal and ideological systems, and economics. Last time out, we looked at the processes of change that resulted from Roman precedents interfacing with the new realities of the early Middle Ages in Christian Europe. The result was a huge spectrum of outcomes in which deals between landowners and the people who worked their land was negotiated in a one-on-one -on -one basis. Simple Roman concepts like a person is either a slave or not a slave seem to have broken down in this period, allowing for a lot of what we might call social creativity. A key part of that creativity was the ability of a person to sell their freedom without fundamentally undermining their status as a person within the community. Today I'll discuss how this all resolved into the more familiar legal situation of free peasants, serfs, and slaves as a result of a new set of social changes occurring in Europe starting around the year 1000. In the process, I will wrap up not only this discussion of slavery, but this entire third season of this show, 
finally concluding my look at the social history of the early Middle Ages and allowing us to start moving on towards other topics. Let us begin with a podcast footnote. A quick word about my sources. Today we are going to be discussing things happening between the years 1000 and 1200. This puts me at, let's say, the outer edge of what my research thus far has covered, so please understand that this is only a brief sketch. I did want to take the time to get the sources specifically on this era, but the discovery phase of that project made it clear that I would need around three books and god knows how many articles to do the research thoroughly for something that I wanted to cover in one episode. So I have made the executive decision to not do that and rely on what I have. Do not fear, I will be returning to much of this later on in a few seasons. As we update everything we've talked about in this season, I will be stopping back in on the whole slavery question. But for now, I think this is going to be fine for a wrap-up episode. At least, that is what I will be telling my pillow tonight as I try and go to sleep. End podcast footnote. In the years after 1000, Europe was changing. You could feel it in the land and the water. Specifically, in the renewed trade trundling along the region's roads and sailing down its rivers and seas. Even as the Carolingian Empire went through its final political death throes, the shared cultural space it had created, something due in no small part to the stability of the church and the successor monarchies, permitted longer-distance trade contacts to operate securely. After the collapse of the slave trade, merchants continued to trade in more mundane commodities along the same routes. Regional and sub-regional trade in agriculture and forestry products was the mainstay, but low-value consumer items like ceramics, some kinds of metalwork, and cheap wool and garments became key trade objects. Ultimately, long-distance trade in high-value, low-weight items like silks and spices would revive as well, along with an energetic trade in wine. Cities were places of density where it was easy for the merchants to meet with customers, but could be tempting targets for raiders. Happily, as this period dawned, the threat from all kinds of raids were receding as the monarchies of Europe consolidated their shaky internal stability and finally fought off the real egregious external threats. As a result of this new security and the revived trade, urbanization also revived during this period, as did a new regionally institutionalized monastic system. These two changes would lead to major changes for the peasantry, both free and unfree, in the European region. The monastic system was probably the more important factor at first. The production of literate, educated clerics initially served to more securely staff the clergy of the church, and helped to consolidate institutions like bishops' schools at which even secular children of the nobility could learn to read. The religious men favored institutionalization of the legal system and of agriculture, two developments that were part of the process of stabilizing the new monarchies and encouraging the rule of law. It should also be mentioned as an aside that the stabilization of agriculture would produce agricultural surpluses, which would also kind of allow all this stuff to happen in kind of a chicken and egg thing. In any case, some of these bishop schools became very prestigious and became the first universities, a development that will be increasingly important in the seasons to come of our story. The key early universities were in Bologna, founded in 1088 and specializing in law, the University of Paris, founded in 1150 and specializing in theology, and the University of Oxford, founded in 1157 and specializing in logic, along with theology. The earliest, and possibly the place that set the pattern for these other locations, was the University of Salerno, which specialized in medicine and which was founded sometime between 800 and 900. 
Sadly, much of the documentation of the early years of this university is lacking, if it ever existed, and the political instability we will be discussing in southern Italy and Sicily in the seasons to come undermined the achievements of this institution and probably destroyed a lot of our records. So despite its early importance, it's hard to make a lot of firm claims about what Salerno did for the rest of Europe, other than training a lot of very talented doctors. These universities were constantly interacting with that other big change, the rise of urban areas. The universities themselves were the product of a merger of the bishop schools with the social organization of the urban guilds. This is something we will look at in more depth in the future seasons, but the modern university started out as essentially a labor union of teachers, or students, or both, in cities with large bishop schools. More broadly, the merchants of the cities were increasingly engaged in long-distance trade, and the successful families often employed various relations to act as agents in distant cities. In such circumstances, it was difficult, if not impossible, to rely solely on verbal communication. So the rise of an urban economy with long-distance trade as a component of this drove demand for education, at least in terms of the functional literacy and basic administrative math skills, which were the purview of many of these basic bishop schools and monastic institutions. Eventually, private institutions would develop to help kids along with this stuff as well, especially on the secular side. But again, the people who were acting as tutors often had some training in clerical capacity. This rise in literacy, along with the progressive institutionalization of the church, had key impacts on the legal systems of Europe. While law codes had long been an aspirational part of the duty of kings, there was often not the administrative capacity to utilize written laws and records, as we've discussed many times in this podcast. Many law courts relied on law speakers who memorized the customary law codes, and that was sort of a best-case scenario when you didn't just have a lord just saying what you wanted to have done and pointing a sword at you if you disagreed. Charlemagne tried to push a change in this situation, with partial success. But starting around 1000, and with increasing density thereafter, we start to see the proliferation of charters, property records, written legal decisions, and ultimately local, urban, and even manorial law codes that form the biggest source of our knowledge about the Middle Ages, or one of them anyway. Many of these were forgeries, or otherwise compromised sources of data, but the fact that they exist at all shows how written documents were coming to have a place of prominence in the legal system. Having a law or a negotiated deal written down could give a person or organization a major edge in getting their version of the law accepted by the courts. Who cares if the fact that it's written down has more to do with you than your ancestors? This brings us to the real point of today's episode, the rise of jurisprudence in European society and how that changed European conceptions of unfreedom. By 1200 or so, these changes were well in place. The idea of written legal systems had taken root across Europe, and the leading lights of this change were that those educated in the school of Bologna. The Bolognese school, being located in Italy, on the border between Lombardy but within the Papal States, was strongly influenced by canon law, but also by the systematic approach of the Roman legal tradition. Initially, the work of legal experts simply consisted of writing down the largely oral customary traditions of the various parts of Europe. But by 1200, the goals of these scholars had shifted to codification, a process of simplification and tweaking of the laws to conform to what they saw as the logical principles of the Roman tradition. Podcast footnote. This is going to be a bit lengthy, but I think it's important for understanding what we're about to be talking about here. 
I think a key thing to understand is the importance of the law code of Justinian to the school of Bologna in particular, and thus to the entirety of Europe. In the period after Charlemagne, the code of Justinian was not really well known or accepted in the West. For whatever reason, the earlier law code of Theodosius made the transition to the West, while the Justinian code took a century or so to be accepted, despite being published by Theodosius's immediate successor. In any case, the difference in the contents of these codes is potentially important to our story. While both are works of extraordinary scholarly effort, the Theodosian scholars mainly just gathered together all the legal documents of the late empire into one book, and didn't do much editing beyond the already difficult task of that compilation. Unfortunately, many of the legal decisions and laws contained in the book were contradictory. They were included without much explanation, and in general, the code was just long and confusing. The Code of Justinian made the effort of reconciling these precedents in terms of basic Roman legal principles, at least as those scholars saw them, with areas of confusion being clarified by new ordinances supposedly coming from Justinian, though of course his scholars probably wrote them and he just rubber-stamped their work. Obviously, if you are starting to base your society's idea of how legal systems are supposed to work on just one book, the difference between these two books is going to result in some important differences in outcome. The older book feels like a compilation of case law and customary law, while the newer one seems comprehensive, logical, and systematic, like law is supposed to be some sort of system, rather than just random decisions by a bunch of judges over a very long period of time. That the latter version of this became the accepted text in the West starting around 1200 explains a lot of the emphasis of legal scholars from this period on on systems, on logic and coherence. The Code of Justinian remains one of the cornerstones of the civil law systems that are used in most of Europe, as subsequent law codes were often just edits of the original. That includes, to a large extent, the Code Napoleon. The other major legal tradition in the West, the common law system of England, is notably predominant only in the Anglosphere, which is internationally significant, but actually not that important in terms of Europe. It would probably be a forgotten legal oddity of England if England hadn't developed an empire. The common law legal system is supposedly just based on the compilation of case law going back into the mists of the early Middle Ages, with no real basis in Roman ideas, although those certainly were incorporated eventually, sort of, at least as an influence. Which system you prefer is something that is in the eye of the beholder, but many things we Americans assume are normal and correct, like jury trials, are not necessarily the norm in civil law systems. A thing to remember going forward is that before the changes we are discussing, most of Europe had its own common law systems, complete with jury trials and the like in many cases. The fact that England retained a common law system is partly down to it being a damp, unimportant boggy island off the north coast of Europe, and partly down to the legal genius of Henry II, who is low-key one of my favorite kings despite being a huge jerk as a person. Sadly, we won't really have a reason to discuss him in this podcast, so let me just quickly say that while continental kings used the inevitable logic of the Roman law system as sent to them via Justinian to push for their version of centralization, Henry II took a different course to achieve the same thing. Henry II used a codification of common law and a revival of traditional institutions within common law as it existed in England to do the same thing, to centralize his state in a unique and different way. 
This was, to a certain extent, very popular with the people because it allowed for a legal system that conformed to the expectations and traditions of the somewhat oppressed Anglo-Saxon majority of the country, while not stepping on the toes too much of the Norman-French overlords that Henry II relied on as the basis of his power. From an ideological standpoint, this checked a lot of boxes for him all at once. It's one of these, like, political judo moves that you just appreciate more and more the more you look into it. Making the common law into a codified system allowed Henry to centralize his government by picking and choosing the different pieces of Anglo-Saxon legal precedent that he wanted, but he got to claim that he wasn't changing anything. He wasn't doing some sort of innovation or legislating from on high. He was just reviving jury trials. He was just reviving the system of traveling courts. Even the revival of jury trials, which often seems like this big democratic thing to many people, even that worked in the favor of the centralization of the government under Henry II, since the system let him not have local nobles completely dominate everything, but it also made it so that he didn't have to pay this huge bureaucracy to go out and travel out to all these different districts and keep an eye on things. He would just have one judge show up, and then the bailiffs would gather in local people, and people were kind of okay with it because they got some say in how law and justice was being administered. But at that time, Henry didn't have to pay them. So it was like kind of a cheap system compared to some continental systems. Now, in the grand scheme of things, whether having guilt or innocence be determined by whatever schmucks the bailiff could drag in that day, rather than a fully trained legal scholar, that remains an ongoing debate. The last thing to note here is that despite the very different systems that they came up with, what Henry II and what Justinian I did was actually fundamentally similar. Despite the vaunted logic and clarity of Roman law, by the time of Theodosius, Roman law was confusing, contradictory, and not in line with the ideological principles it was supposedly based on. The Acts of Justinian often, in many cases, moved Roman legal tradition away from very dearly held legal traditions that went back to the Republic because they were either out of date, no longer important to the new society of the Eastern Roman Empire, or just, you know, not all that convenient for Justinian. So Justinian and Henry, or at least their teams of lawyers, sorted through, in both cases, centuries of case law at their disposal and picked and chose something that looked logical and planned. But in neither case was that the case beforehand. They made something that seemed planned out out of a system that was fundamentally not. In other words, the continued to this day reputation of Roman law as logical and coherent is entirely due to perceptions being shaped by Justinian and his propagandists. The idea that common law is less logical or coherent is also a product of Henry's propaganda, as it was in his best interests culturally and ideologically and politically to claim that he was not rocking the boat, he was just keeping things traditional the way they'd always been. End podcast footnote. So, the task of legal scholars in Europe in the High Middle Ages was twofold. First, laws, legal precedents, and legal documents needed to be written down. As I said, this was substantially done by 1200. The next issue was that, to these Latin-speaking legal scholars versed in the Code of Justinian, these common law systems of most of Europe were a mess. It was full of contradictory laws, contradictory precedents, and possibly worst of all, ideas that flew in the face of the orderly ideology of the Roman tradition as filtered through Justinian. Just as a random example, 
It was accepted in Roman tradition that slaves were entirely at the mercy of their masters and were their own class. But in the European tradition, you had all these unfree persons who, by law, could not be sold off the land and had what amounted to negotiated contracts with their lord. You could solve this by just saying that now, as of today, all slaves would be like these unfree peasants. But that would seriously undermine the power of those who were buying new slaves, something that was starting to happen again in Italy in large numbers, and also in Spain. Alternatively, you could call this class of peasants a new term, like serf, but that flew against the Roman tradition that there were only two kinds of person, free or unfree, and this was a difficult circle to square. I guess I need to do a podcast footnote here. I'm sorry it's really quickly after the last one. But the revival of the slave trade in Italy and in Spain was in a new and different form than it had been in the Roman Empire. And oddly enough, that new and different form looked more like the old form than what was going on with serfdom. So the Italians and the Spaniards were importing people from like the Black Sea, or in Spain's case, they were taking Muslims captive in their wars, things like that. And these people were enslaved and could be sold and traded and moved around uh, entirely at the will of their owners. You know, it looks more like what we consider slavery now. The difference is that these were outsiders. These were definitively people who were not members of the local community. And that made all the difference. And that became a key part of what slavery was in these areas. I will get into this all a lot more in future seasons. But for right now, the theme that we all need to grasp onto is that what changed in Italy and Spain is that slavery had moved from a condition that any person could have to something that was only legitimate to apply to political outsiders. End podcast footnote. Let us leave the legal scholars to it, trying to square their circle, because there was more going on than just the legal and ideological considerations. If you'll recall, two episodes ago, we talked about how the ancient slavery systems likely came apart not only because of the lack of a compulsory authority in the form of the Roman Empire, but also because of the disintegration of the Roman trade networks during the Merovingian period. It became much less important to extract as much grain as possible from your laborers when you had nowhere to sell it, and so lords could afford to be a bit more lax about the amount of profit they squeezed off their land in light of the other incentives they faced. So it didn't matter that you couldn't squeeze every ounce of profit out of these slaves. It became more important that you prevent them from running away by putting them in better conditions and things like that. Be that as it may, by 1200, guess what? Trade is back, baby. The grain markets are open again, albeit in fairly small regions due to transportation difficulties and spoilage issues. But still, it was increasingly worthwhile to participate in the larger money economy, and so landlord incentives were changing again. However, it wasn't as simple as the grain markets are back online, so landlords suddenly wanted to shake the money tree. Changes were happening in the landowning class itself. The first thing that was happening was the concentration of landed wealth into a smaller and smaller number of hands. This meant that individual families controlled larger estates and were more likely to not be physically present on their estates at any given time, or certainly not at your estate at any one time. Due to changes in the self-conception of the noble class, smaller landlords were being progressively squeezed out, and, you know, larger landlords were conquering. This process was not unrelated to the rise of law codes and such, which helped to dictate who was who in the society and who was and who was not a noble. 
Suffice it to say that landlords were increasingly not functioning in the traditional role of a local civic leader, physically present on the estate and directly managing things. They were instead becoming absentees, governing via representatives at best, and simply just collecting whatever rents they could get from a distance. Because they had so many estates, it didn't matter, again, if they squeezed every last drop out of this one in particular. So that's three forces that were at play here. The third one is that we have this rising merchant class that was becoming a player in the land ownership game. As they had in Italy, merchant families that were able to secure a lot of liquid wealth, which is to say actual physical money or similar items, sought to secure their family success and diversify their holdings by buying land. This would give them the prestige of effectively becoming members of the nobility, while also giving them profit-making assets that were less directly tied to the vicissitudes of trade and were maybe more useful than just shoving money under their mattress. These newly minted aristocrats, with a background in trade and business, went out to their new holdings and found that, to their horror, not every ounce of profit was being squeezed out of them. They were not exactly being managed systematically, and the peasants in many cases seemed to just sort of be running the show as they saw fit. This would not do, said the budding agro-capitalists of the 1200s. All of these forces gradually started to come together, and it was not a linear process. What they did, ultimately, was serve to encourage the centralization of these estates. No longer were the deals between the lord and his man something that was worked out one-on-one via verbal agreement. The lords needed to have relatively uniform legal settlements across their vast estates, and those settlements needed to provide more wealth for lords who were increasingly tied up in a rising trade system. The new merchant lords could potentially have worked on a one-on-one basis, but that was just not their style. They wanted things to be systematic and productive and efficient. The new class of legal scholars helped with this work by codifying regional legal systems and gradually tweaking them and streamlining them and making it clear where the contradictions were and eliminating those problems. Or, alternatively, imposing their pro-Justinian ideological worldview onto a system of laws that had worked well before, but which didn't conform to how they saw things as working out. You take your pick. The result was that anyone with an unfree status was slowly pushed into a situation we would come to recognize as serfdom, though I should note that the actual word serf isn't, like, written down until the 1500s. Nonetheless, there was a condition that was recognizable as such starting in the 1200s. In the estates across Europe, the constellation of individual deals were slowly being compacted into a few different kinds of status. Anyone determined to be unfree generally could not leave the estate. They had to do direct work for the lord and faced a host of other restrictions on things like the right to marry whom they wanted. They would not necessarily inherit their land when their parents died, and they had to visit the lord in person to swear oaths and make clear their loyalty when that happened. Free peasants still had to pay their rent and there were a variety of other fees that were extracted from them, and in practice, no one was going on summer holiday to the shoreside in the Middle Ages, so the ability to leave the estate was mostly theoretical, but there were also certainly benefits to not being considered unfree. However, the situation is just not as simple as it seems, because it never is in the Middle Ages, even as we get into the High Middle Ages. Many of these restrictions on serfs may have had some function at some point, somewhere, But by the time they were written down, many had just become ways to extract extra fees. For example, it sort of makes sense that a lord has the ability to tell a slave who they could and could not marry, 
and potentially it could create issues if an unfree peasant woman, say, married a man from another estate and then went there to live, which was a thing that they could do now because they had all these rights. But the absentee landlords of the High Middle Ages weren't actually out there micromanaging relationships. These rules quickly, very quickly, became monetary fees that the serfs paid at major life events as a mark of their unfree status. So if this guy wants to marry a peasant woman from another village, she can come and live with him, but he has to pay money to both lords to get the right to marry as he sees fit. Obviously, this was partly just a mark of their unfree status, and a big part of it was just netting the lords some extra cash. Sometimes these things were allowed to go lax, but when a lord or the lord's overseer was energetically maintaining and using their rights to the fullest of their potential, which was increasingly important these days if you wanted to operate in a cash economy, they would be out there squeezing every last little fee out of the peasants that they could get away with. How this all played out in practice had a lot to do with very local conditions. How restrictive the old deals were in the past versus the new centralized laws had a lot to do with outcomes, because if you try and move things too far too fast, you get a lot of angry peasants. And indeed, in many cases, these changes created unrest and led to the granting of exceptions. This was partly true because of the rising power of village communes, which allowed for collective bargaining. But there's also the fact that this entire thing was like a game of meta 3D chess. All these silly little fees to avoid arcane laws were, in many cases, themselves a ploy by a lord to get the unfree peasants to buy their own freedom in a large one-time cash settlement. As a for example, labor obligations, which seems like the most basic part of being a serf. You know, if you are in some way unfree, you have to go and do work for someone else some part of the time. Like, that seems like a pretty basic thing. It was also, obviously, extremely unpopular, because when you're out doing that work, you're not working on your own land. And this is interesting. In many cases, the lords didn't actually have that much land left to farm. They'd often granted out most of the estate to the peasants for their use, or they were using the land for grazing, which was much less labor-intensive to manage and didn't really require all that many peasants. So in these cases, the lords didn't need or want the serfs to do labor for them. But by making them come in and do these obnoxious duties, they could eventually convince a lot of the serfs to give them cash fees in lieu of the work. In some cases, they would just give them a fee every year to get out of it, and in some cases, they would just buy their freedom. It depended on what the lord needed at the time. If the lord was interested in a steady money supply, the lord would go for the yearly fees. If the lord needed a lot of money to go on crusade, that was a thing that happened a lot in this era, they would go out to everybody and say, you want to be free now? You know, I'm, I'm taking offers. But this was not a linear process. While in the long term, the trend was towards a desire for cash fees as a result of the money economy and things like that, it depended heavily on economic trends that could be very local and also on the personality of the Lord. Again, you know, you can't say your Lord going on crusade was something that was happening all across Europe. But in some cases, in some very local places, that was very important. During times of economic contraction or the medieval equivalent of vicissitudes of the futures market or something like that, lords sometimes benefited more from having people come into actual labor and from having more direct control. In these circumstances, you will often find lords imposing unfree statuses on people using legal trickery or very obscure documents. Many of new urban landlords preferred to have agricultural estates that functioned like businesses, with paid employees doing work to produce goods, and in that context, 
utilizing unfree status of serfs a couple days a week created a situation that was more familiar to them than the sort of milking rents and fees that the older lords had been doing. These pendulums swung back and forth over the next few centuries. In general, the trend in Western Europe would be towards the gradual elimination of serfdom, but in 1200 that was far from clear, and the process would still take much time. Arguably, you could say another two or three centuries for the sake of argument, though there were some elements of serfdom that really weren't eliminated until the French Revolution. What is clear to modern historians, and to many contemporaries as well, is that the newer, much more simple, and arguably much more restrictive conception of unfreedom was being imposed across Europe. As you might expect, the peasants were generally not happy about this. This unhappiness would start to build in ways that we will see paying off across the next few seasons. But that said, I think it's clear that the years around 1200 were probably the high point of this peasant society in general. After a century of mostly secure peace, peasant farms were prospering, producing surpluses, which was allowing this urbanization, the development of institutions, and just generally allowing the population as a whole to grow, even in the countryside. Lords and peasants at this time cooperated on expanding cultivation into undeveloped areas sometimes clearing forests around existing villages for new fields, sometimes creating entirely new villages deep in the woods. Initially, this meant there was plenty of land being worked under clear, easy-to-manage terms, and there was more or less enough food for everybody. But from the latter half of this century, and definitely by 1300, there are signs of overpopulation. There are no more good spots for village settlements. Forest resources are running scarce, resulting in very unpopular laws passed by the nobility across Europe protecting forests from being over-harvested by the peasants. With the kind of backup resources that you could get from foraging increasingly scarce, famines and crop failures became more and more frequent and difficult. Also, the climate began to change, something we will address more in later seasons. So as we turn away from the social history of Europe, this is the image to keep in the back of your mind. From 1000 onwards, Europe is a place of expanding institutions, of increasingly prosperous trade, and renewed intellectual growth, and a peasantry that's mostly at peace and is enjoying the benefits of that economic growth. But by that same token, the growth of institutions is creating and reinforcing social hierarchies that had not been so meaningful before. It's becoming more important than ever to squeeze wealth from estates, and this is happening at the same time that the population starts to put a strain on resources. Peasants that had a relatively decent deal in 1000 started to get put under pressure in 1200, and by 1300 have begun to get positively grumpy. As the European aristocratic system consolidated, initially things looked pretty good, but by the end of the next season of this show, things will have taken a turn for the not-so-good, even the worse, and everyone will be made aware of the consequences, even if they do not fully understand the causes at the time. Okay. I think that wraps things up nicely. But before I end this episode, I would just like to take a moment to reflect on this last season, talk a bit about the show and where we're going from here. First, I should actually talk about the seasons thing. I think I mentioned it before, but it's new. For a long time, there was no way to display seasons and I hadn't really thought of it. But when they added this feature into podcasts maybe about a year ago, I realized that this would be a really good tool for helping to organize what I was talking about. So the first season was like the walking tour. The second season was the Gadeshi story arc. This season has been a social history of the early Middle Ages, and I'm very proud of it, warts and all. Next season, we will finally reach the investiture controversy. I'll talk about that 
in the next mainline episode, when I will be doing an introduction to that season. But suffice it to say that as we return to the politics and statecraft of the European Middle Ages, we will be looking at a story arc whose themes directly impact the wars of religion in ways that are not always recognized in the standard telling of the Protestant Reformation. So that will be season four. Depending on how far we get in the timeline during season four, season five will be a history of the Hanseatic League up to the year 1500 or thereabouts. Season six will be a break for more social history, albeit a much shorter one, I think, than this season has been. Mostly up just updating the things we talked about this season. Season seven will deal with the eventful life and ideas of a strange monk named Martin. Beyond that, let's see how we're doing when we get there, shall we? I covered a lot of ground in this season. It may not yet be clear where I'm going with this, though hopefully that rundown helped clarify a bit what I'm doing. In terms of why I felt the need to cover early medieval society in such depth, suffice it to say that a full picture of the European peasantry and society is going to be important for understanding the early modern period. That society was not monolithic. It had structure and incentives that evolved over time. It included not only Christian insiders, but religious outsiders and... Women. And how society dealt with its lack of uniformity is going to be very important in the early modern period. It's very easy to get swept away by the political events of these times and miss how these events impacted normal people who made up the vast majority of our ancestors. While the impact of things happening in 800 on things happening in 1600 may not be clear, society changed slowly in the Middle Ages. Part of what I find so interesting about the early modern period is how much it suddenly changed away from conditions of the Middle Ages. Something that might not seem like such a big deal for modern people, for whom major change happens every time a CEO of a tech company sneezes. But part of the importance of these episodes is hopefully to help make clear how much that was not the case in the Middle Ages. Even in today's episode about slavery, okay, we talked about the gradual evolution of a social identity that started in late antiquity and didn't reach a recognizable form until around the year 1200. At that time, the peasants working the land were using techniques and tools that in many places had not really changed that much since ancient Egypt, and were even the most advanced techniques and technologies dated back to the High Roman Empire. By comparison, the years between 1500 and 1700, England and France will almost entirely upend their agricultural system, mostly eliminate serfdom and slavery from their domestic territories, fundamentally overhaul their political systems, adopt an entirely new set of military techniques and technologies, and, oh yeah, begin industrializing. The scale of the change we will discuss would not be clear if we didn't realize that it took 400 years for Europe to determine that writing down laws might be a good idea, actually. So as I wrap up, I just wanted to thank you all for going on this bizarre, giant, multi-year podcast footnote with me. It's been a challenging season, to say the least, both in terms of my personal life and in terms of the work that I've put into this in terms of finding sources, finding times to write and read and all that stuff. Posting this show and interacting with you has, despite all this, been a consistent joy. I, of course, must particularly thank my donors and patrons, without whom I would honestly have struggled to pay my bills for the last few years. But all of you are so amazing. The idea that several thousand people care about what I have to say about European history, with all my tangents and nonlinear thinking and storytelling and bad jokes, is humbling and life-affirming. So thank you. Well, on that melodramatic note, I'm going to wrap this up a bit early and go get lunch. That's what I said when I wrote the script. It's now 1022 at night, so I might go get a snack. I'm feeling a little peckish.
The next episode is going to be the Potiversary, and I have no idea what I'm doing. Also, Agoraphobia is coming up, and I'm drawing a blank there as well, but I will come up with something. In any case, keep an eye on your feeds. A new episode of Why Though will drop soon, and then the Potiversary, and then we will begin our new season. A lot to look forward to in the next couple months, all coming in the next season of Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.